Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Mark Pulliam. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View Stable of Podcasts, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee, Washington. And while you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free to you. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Mark Pulliam. Mark Pulliam writes from East Tennessee. A big law veteran, he retired as a partner in a large California law firm after practicing for 30 years, a contributing editor to Law and Liberty since 2015. Law and Liberty's focus is on the classical liberal tradition of law and political thought and how it shapes a society of free and responsible persons. This site brings together serious debate, commentary, essays, book reviews, interviews, and educational material in a commitment to the first principles of law in a free society. Law and Liberty considers a range of foundational and contemporary legal issues and legal philosophy. Mark also blogs at Misrule of Law. In the 1990s, Mark turned primarily to commentary in newspapers and opinion journals from 1995 through 1998. He wrote a monthly column for the San Diego Daily Transcript, the local legal newspaper, entitled Politically Incorrect. From 1993 through 2003, he wrote a regular column for California Political Review as that journal's legal issues correspondent, pre-digital age. He considers himself a fully recovered lawyer. We'll see. Mark Pulliam is one of the few truly fearless, devastatingly incisive, original, and yet deeply learned commentators on the contemporary legal scene, says Professor Stephen B. Presser, Professor of Legal History Emeritus, Northwestern University School of Law. Mark's work appears in the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, National Review, City Journal, American Greatness, the American Spectator, the Federalist, the American Thinker, and many other publications. I get a ton of my research from those. And now, immortalized on the Mill Creek View podcast. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm fine. Pleased to be here, and thanks for the kind introduction. Did I do you justice? Did I skip anything? Did I overstate no. anything? Did I embellish anything? Okay, great. All right. You That'll clearly visited my blog, though. <laughs> a few of them, yeah, as a matter of fact. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Um, I'm surprised the Los Angeles Times picks up your stuff. Um, ever been rejected by them or anyone else in the mainstream media for something you've written? Well, I've been doing this a long time, and so uh, you get you submit a lot of stuff, and uh, some stuff gets accepted, some stuff doesn't. Uh, you know, Los Angeles Times was, uh, when I lived in Southern California, a decent newspaper, and they were pretty fair-minded. Um, and so, uh, I you know, I don't have any complaints uh, about them, and uh, I, I have to say that, you know, being a writer and a blogger, it's never been better than it is today in terms of the number of platforms that are available uh, to get your message out. That's true. Um, and I constantly ask people to write me at my newspaper letters to the editor. I actually think it has more impact often than emails directly to lawmakers. They are very concerned about their image in the press. Um, you wrote one to the Los Angeles Times that was quoted in a published Ninth Circuit decision 
Clearfield versus United States, 962 F.2D866-871, Ninth Circuit, 1992. Uh, so it is effective to write op-eds, isn't it? Well, that's when I basically got the message that serious legal scholarship was a waste of, of uh, time uh, uh, and that uh, I'd written a lot of things with a lot of footnotes that had never gotten cited in a published Ninth Circuit decision. But when I write a letter to the editor and it ends up there, I think, well, maybe I ought to redirect my energies in that direction. Do you remember what that one was about and, and what policy? Oh, was it was a, an obnoxious lawyer who was suing because he was forced to take his shoes off to go through the magnetometer to get in the courthouse. And he thought, I'm an officer of the court. I'm better than all these mere civilians. And... Uh, and filed a lawsuit. I was making fun of his lawsuit. And uh, Alex Kaczynski, who was on the Ninth Circuit at the time, I think thought that the guy was a pompous ass also. And so he found a way to quote this uh, letter to the editor in his uh, opinion. Love it. Taking it to the man. Okay. So now you wrote for the Texas Law Review. Uh, we did a show on the Texas Medical Board and uh, some personal vendettas they had against doctors over masking, or in this case, not masking. Is the Texas legal profession more constitutional than, say, California? Well, it's all part of the same cartel, and certain chapters of the cartel are more uh, politically uh, venomous than others in California right now. And I did practice in California for 30-some years. John Eastman has been undergoing a literally a star chamber proceeding that's gone on for months in an effort to disbar him for representing the president of the United States, for giving legal advice to the president of the United States. Now, nothing like that is happening in Texas, although there are people trying to get Attorney General Ken Paxton disbarred for filing pleadings in the Supreme Court regarding the 2020 election. Um, so uh, the legal profession as a whole has taken on a left-wing cast that's very similar now to higher education, and it's hard to find, uh, you know, law firms suffer from this, the organized bar, uh, legal academia. It's very sad for somebody who, when I you know, started law school in 1977, it was sane, uh, maybe not everywhere, but most places. And now it has become insane most places, not everywhere, but most places. And uh, and it appears to be continuing in that direction. And it should be unsettling to all Americans, not just uh, not just lawyers. Yeah. And most lawyers become politicians and most politicians obviously play politics. And so what we're seeing is the weaponization of the legal institutions, which would be called lawfare, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Articles in the Labor Law Journal, the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, Constitutional Commentary, the Wake Forest Law Review, and other scholarly publications, um, that's where you've written. I've followed closely the compromising of the medical journals like JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine. Have you noticed the legal journals like the ones you've been written up in, willing to play politics with law like those did over COVID? I I don't read a lot of uh, scholarly legal publications anymore. I, I gave up even reading my alma mater's law review, uh, the Texas Law Review, 
probably 10 years out of law school just because it had turned into left-wing gibberish. Um, and, uh, you know, these medical journals that you talk about are, for the most part, peer-reviewed legal scholarship published in law reviews. It's all student-edited. The articles are chosen by second and third-year law students who haven't even passed the bar yet. So it, it, there's a, a, a lot of it tends to be sophomoric and... Um, you know, there are publications, the Texas Review of Law and Politics, uh, Harvard Journal of, of uh, Public Policy, which are written from a you know, center-right perspective. And I read some, some, not every article, but I, you know, I scan uh, when, when it comes in the mail. But uh, I think most of the relevant uh, intelligent commentary is in non-legal uh publications uh you know there's some very sophisticated you know, like law and liberty has a sort of a tends to have a an academic or lawyer audience but you don't have you don't have that same kind of bias that student edited publications have and um so it's unfortunate that uh you know scholarship has been sort of taken over as part of the long march but uh uh, I guess it's up to us to try to take it back. Yeah. And speaking of boards of health, our own Tennessee Dr. Denise Sibley faces the American Board of International or Internal Medicine trying to take her board certification away for getting ivermectin passed in Tennessee. Are you aware of that, uh, Tennessee? I saw, case? Yeah. I saw that headline. Yeah. All right. Um, Southern Poverty Law Center made a list of what they consider hateful speech organizations, even though their own executives have been caught in sex scandals and silencing whistleblowers. A former employee of the Family Research Council uh, accused the SPLC of smearing and terrorizing his employer and other groups as hate groups for political gain. Uh, he claims the SPLC is a fraud, a bully, and a failure that has no right to call itself. Uh, has anyone ever come after you for your writings on the, uh, let's say, the conservative side? Not anybody like SPLC. And I have written about the SPLC. Um, you know, the closest thing. So, you know, one of, uh, you know, I'm a retired guy and I can kind of do whatever I want and I can be a, uh, uh, you know, uh, go after whatever targets I find appealing. When I was living in Texas, living in Austin, uh, I got uh, be in my bonnet about the University of Texas, which is very uh, lefty uh, as far as state universities is concerned and much more lefty than most Texans realize. And so I was picking on certain programs and departments at the University of Texas in a Facebook page that I had to stop the insanity at UT. And somebody um, who was in the PhD program there, uh, accused me of, what do they call it, dog whistling and uh, threatened people that followed my page that they would get the treatment of that uh, woman who was walking her dog in uh, New York City and who the, you know ended up getting fired because she complained about... Uh, uh, some guy turned out to be a black guy feeding her, her dog treats and so forth. And so I got into a, with her a little bit, but at nothing systematic. And frankly, I'm a retired guy living in Tennessee. I, you know, there's nothing they can cancel me from. <laughs> and so I think they don't go after 
people like me. They go after people they consider to be vulnerable. Yeah. When you have nothing to lose, it's a lot easier to uh, risk it all, I suppose. Um, but they are perfectors of what I just called lawfare, using the law as a weapon of war. Pretty much what we see with Georgia and New York uh, going after an ex-president, or you mentioned Eastman from California, because uh, if you are dishonest, you can lose your license. And they're trying to say that he was dishonest by trying to defend uh, the election in Georgia. Um, you know, routine political activity now made criminal. Uh, they've had a great success winning the battles with lawyers like Mark Elias on their side. What do you make of weaponizing lawyers, judges, courtrooms, and doing away with, you know, lawyer-client privilege, basically? Well, it's very disturbing. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, is essential to the preservation of liberty in uh, Western society is the rule of law. And the rule of law requires that uh, you have uh, rules that are stated in advance that are uh, consistently and evenly applied. And by definition, lawfare is you're picking winners and losers. You, you have two standards of justice. And if you're a uh, uh, an Antifa uh, rioter, you can do anything you want. If you're a MAGA protester in the Capitol on January 16th, you're going to you know, spend a good part of the rest of your life uh, in, uh, in, in prison. And uh, with lawyers, lawyers have always been celebrated. You think about uh, uh, all of the movies, all the books written about uh, treating lawyers as heroic figures for going against the grain, for standing up for principle. Um, and now, if you take a what turns out to be a controversial or unpopular stance or a stance that goes against the left, then they will use that as an opportunity to uh, discipline you, disbar you, prosecute you for crimes. Uh, and and it's, it's terrible you, to see what Rudy Giuliani, who was, you know, maybe he's passed his prime, but he's had a great career. He's a great American. And they are literally trying to pauperize him. He doesn't even have a lawyer in this Georgia proceeding because, it, you know, to lawyer up costs you a half a million dollars to start. And that can quickly bankrupt anybody. It's um, so it is this lawfare. It's not just picking on people. It's destroying them and using the power of the state to suppress dissent. And that is not consistent with the rule of law. That is one of the elements of a totalitarian society. That's right. And it's very rarely the judge's final decision that is the punishment or the justice that's meted out. The process is the punishment. So to yeah. bankrupt somebody on crazy charges is the punishment versus that. And of course, when you're a politician, you're supposed to be a citizen, you're supposed to be a patriot, you're supposed to be on the side of the, the Constitution and the government. So he's being punished for being an American citizen and the law is not there for him. It definitely looks bad for the future for anyone wanting to get justice out of a court. Uh, used to be justice was blind, right? I mean, Judge Roberts famously said, we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal rights to those appearing before them. Was he telling the truth when he said that? Well, you know, things have changed very dramatically, even in the last 10 years. So I think when he said that, that was probably an accurate statement. But uh, since, you know, since the 2016 election, 
it has sparked this you know, Trump derangement syndrome that has affected every aspect of our society and has literally caused a lot of spheres, which used to be kind of left of center, but not militant, not crazy, to have become hysterical. And people realized that in the summer of 2020, you can get away with anything. And so now, unless we do something to rein things back in, I think this whole process is going to continue to deteriorate in a way that uh, is very disturbing uh, for, for our future. Yeah, I think you're right. And people forget that the Supreme Court justices oversee all of those circuit and lower courts. And if they allow this to go on, because some of them are quite radical, there is no controlling legal authority to stop this. And the places where you would expect it to be, maybe Clarence Thomas's district, that's not the jurisdictions that they're fighting for. Okay, well, thank you for all of that. That that, that was kind of my preface to the show. You wrote an op-ed that got my attention, uh, picked up by The Blaze, which interestingly enough has now gone completely commercial-free and subscription model because they don't want advertisers dictating their editorial content. Um, before we get into your article, have you seen brands and advertisers from Madison Avenue shape editorial content? I haven't. Okay. I haven't. All right. Well, good. Um, I, I'd love to spend hours talking to you about your extensive writings, but focusing on the volunteer state, as we do here, the, the title is The Swamp is Everywhere, Even in Republican Tennessee by, Bar by Mark Pulliam, October 6, 2023. I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, you can all read it in full at theblaze.com. Again, might have to subscribe soon, so might want to hurry. Uh, real quick intro. Conservatives are flocking to Tennessee as political refugees from blue states. The Tennessee Republican Party should be embracing these new voters with gusto, but instead treat them as pariahs. Political parties exist to serve voters, not vice versa. So why does the TRP, Tennessee Republican Party, in one of the nation's most conservative states restrict participation in internal governance of the state party and Tennessee's 95-county GOP organizations and eligibility to run as a Republican candidate to an infinitesimal percentage of the nearly 2 million Tennessee patriots who identify as Republican. Mark, I am one of those political refugees you speak of, left Washington because I'm a concerned parent that warned folks Washington was anti-women and coming for their kids, turned out to be 100% correct, and Tennessee was the right place to move. I checked the voter percent when I did my homework, and since 2000, Bush versus Gore, when Tennessee was 50-50 like the U.S., it's grown to 60-plus, 40-minus Republican like for Trump. East Tennessee, where you are, went for Goldwater. It's so staunchly conservative. What is the party doing? Well, first of all, let me mention to your uh, viewers that the Blaze piece that I wrote is uh, also available for viewing on my blog, Misrule of Law, that does not have a paywall. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to make any money. I lose money, but I just do it, you know, as a hobby. So uh, they can go to Misrule of Law and, and find that piece. So what's going on is um, uh, it took me a while to get my head wrapped around this because I've been a conservative all my adult life. Uh, I moved to Southern California as a young man, uh, starting my career. I lived there for 30 years. And when I lived there, it was Reagan country. And it was a great place to be. And it was a you know 
Ronald Reagan literally carried uh, California twice as president, in addition to being elected governor there twice. And this isn't ancient history. This is, you know, 1980 and 1984. George Bush carried it in 1988. So California hasn't always been a lost cause. It became a lost cause. And so when I retired from practicing, I moved to Texas. Unfortunately, I moved back to Austin, Texas, which is, you know, like moving from one place in California to another for all intents and purposes. And uh, and then the same thing happened there. It went from being kind of a fun place, but that, you know, wasn't a democratic socialist to being a chaos. And so I moved to Tennessee, did the same research you did, picked basically the most conservative place in the country with running water and electricity. And I thought, once I got here, I'm going to find a lot of people who are going to be happy to have me and who are going to be wanting to march uh, shoulder to shoulder with me to keep Tennessee the way it is. But what I found out is that this establishment that we get used to thinking about is something that exists only inside the beltway, exists in every state in America, in every county in America, and basically every city of America. And so even though in Blount County, where I live, 71% of the voters voted for Donald Trump, that still means that we had 27% who voted for a crazy Democrat. And that's going to be true. You know, you could pick your place in the most conservative place in Utah, and there will still be some liberals. And so you can't escape from liberals. You just have to learn to deal with them and, and to outwork them and outorganize them and to defeat them. But you also have other interests and you have the Chamber of Commerce. You have whatever type of longstanding family connections. You have uh, existing crony relationships. And all of these people organize local government for their benefit. And they don't want conservative grassroots activists telling them what to do or running candidates that might uh, interfere or obstruct their agenda. And so they become their own establishment. And in a place like East Tennessee, you have to claim to be a Republican to get elected. So everybody in local government has an R after their name. We have a county commission with 21 commissioners. They're all Republican. But we have one who uh, I would say is a conservative, and he's not even a conservative across the board. He kind of picks and chooses his fights. And so the so I thought, well, this is kind of unfortunate. What we've got to do is we got to get the people organized, a majority of whom, 71% of whom basically agree with me to take back these local governments. And what I found when I went down to our local Republican Party, the county Republican Party, is that it doesn't exist. It, you know, They have a website, they have a Facebook page, but nobody answers the phone. There's no office and they don't do anything. There's no meetings you can attend. They don't have a precinct program. They don't get out to vote. They don't register voters. They don't do anything. What they do is every year they have a Lincoln Day dinner. And then every other year they reorganize to elect new officers. So I thought, okay, they just need help. And so I thought, I'll roll up my sleeves. I'll volunteer. Well, they don't want volunteers. They don't want interference. They want to do exactly what they're doing because they're doing what the establishment wants them to do, which is to basically sit in the back row and not make any noise. 
Isn't that amazing? And so, okay. Oh, uh, I was going to take another paragraph out of your article. Just last month, the TRP amended its bylaws for the third time in five years to make the already strict definition of bona fide Republican the standard for intraparty participation and eligibility to appear on the GOP ballot even more stringent used to be a talking point for Republicans to be a big tent. This is me, <laughs> big tent, right? Expand the party with more inclusivity to get more voters. This isn't that. This is shrink the tent and put a lock on the front gate, right? Yes. And um, it uh, and the reason we have to have this test, a bona fide Republican test, is because Tennessee is an open primary state. And so when you register to vote in Tennessee, they don't ask you, would you like to register as a Democrat or Republican? You just register. And so anybody can vote in any primary. So you don't have to be a Republican to vote in the Republican primary. You don't have to be Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary. And that by itself is problematic. And unlike both California and Texas, where I previously lived, and you might wonder, well, why does that make sense that why should Democrats have a voice in selecting your Republican nominee for any office? And what it does, the Republicans, the rhinos, I'll call them, in Nashville, in the General Assembly, they're okay with this because they rely on the Democrats to help take out the conservative candidates in the primary to make it easier for the rhinos to get the nomination. And that is exactly what happened when Gary Humble ran against Jack Johnson for the state Senate seat in uh, uh, in the Nashville area, he lost by like 700 votes and more than 700 Democrats voted in that primary. It's likely that he would have won in a closed primary. But, uh, you know, you wonder why aren't the Republican Party try to close the, the primary is because they don't want to because it's not in their interest. But once you have an open primary, then you have a legitimate question. So when Somebody wants to run for office as a Republican. How can you tell whether they're really a Republican or they're somebody posing as a Republican? And every other year when all the county parties have these reorganization meetings to elect new officers, how do you decide uh, uh, who's eligible to participate in that and to cast a vote in that? And they use the same test, the bona fide Republican test. And if they had a test that wasn't much more demanding than show us your voter registration card to show that it has an R on it, which is all you have to do anywhere else. Then what you would say is, okay, we don't register by party, but we're going to sort out whether you're a real Republican versus a phony Republican by have you in the past voted in Republican primaries and never voted in a Democratic primary. And if you did that, you could have that test in one sentence, and it would be very easy to apply. But instead, they've come up with this incredibly convoluted thing, and I, I spent a lot of time in my article describing it and quoting the bylaws that, you know, which is like reading something from the Internal Revenue Code. It's so complicated. But they say, no, it's not that simple. You have to have voted in at least three out of the last four statewide Republican primaries. Very few people vote in every single Republican primary. Uh, and 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 uh, and then that's not enough. And if you move from out of state, you have to be able to prove how you voted in your previous state, which yeah, I want to I want to mention that only you wrote only three percent 
not 30, not 33, not 99, but 3% of self-identifying Republicans would be considered bona fide under the prior bylaws. And I know they made it hard for me personally, since they wanted to see my voting record from Washington, where Steve is sitting, which is a secret ballot, by the way. And they don't keep records because you don't even have to register as either party to vote, like you said here. So they couldn't give me my records to voluntarily, voluntarily turn over. And by the way, what if I voted for McCain, Romney, Clinton, because I just couldn't stand mean tweets and, and then right. wanted to vote Republican next year for Trump or DeSantis or whoever. Why should my out of party vote kick me out of a party uh, from the past? So anyway, that well, would never so, happen. So, so you got the three out of the last four statewide primaries and local primaries don't count. Um, but that's not the end of it. Then you have to be actively involved. Well, what does actively involved mean? Well, like participating in this podcast, that doesn't count. Uh, you know, writing articles, that doesn't count. The only thing that counts is being actively involved in your county GOP. We don't have a county GOP that does anything to be active in. Well, they say you could join the Women's Federated. Well, you know, maybe I'm a, I, I don't want to join a women's group where if you did join, you wouldn't be allowed to vote or attend, be on any committees because it's a women's group. You're, you're considered a, you know, men auxiliary. And, you know, and then you have to have been active uh, within the last two years in order for this to count. And so, and then you have to have given money to uh, the state party, to the uh, local party, uh, and just now, in these most recent amendments, they've said, or some other candidate. Until these amendments that they passed last year, if you had given $1,000 to President Trump or $1,000 to your senator or $1,000 to your congressman, that wouldn't count, and they would deny you participation. They would say you're not bona fide because you failed to give even $10 to your county party or to the state party. So... This that's, is a that's a, that's that's, spread, that's funny because the turnout has been so low. There are some counties near you that had four percent turnout, meaning ninety six percent didn't even show up. That just couldn't be part of the party because they were not interested in what was going on. But back to your article. Uh, well, it may not be that they're not interested; is that they have been driven away through right. this type of attitude where we don't want you. You're considered a nuisance to us, and uh, so. So people may say, well, is this really an issue? Is this really a thing? Yes, it's in the bylaws, but is it enforced? You bet it's enforced. And in the 5th Congressional District in Nashville, uh, this last election cycle, uh, as a result of reapportionment, what had been a safe Democratic seat was turned into a safe Republican seat. The Democrat who held that seat decided he wasn't even going to run for re-election and uh, but it became very popular. So we had like a dozen Republicans who were vying for the nomination for that seat. And the Republican Party knocked three of them off the ballot before the election, including the candidate that had been endorsed by President Trump, Morgan, Morgan Ortegas. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Andy and Ogles the, has that seat now. And and I'm not complaining about Andy Ogles. I think he's a good guy and he's doing a good job. But voters ought to be allowed to pick the nominee. It shouldn't be up to this insiders on the Tennessee Republican Party. 
One of the people who were thrown off the ballot ahead of time, Robbie Starbuck, who is a political refugee from California, he said, you can't do this. This is not American. This is like a banana republic. And he hired Harmeet Dillon, filed a lawsuit, took it up to the Tennessee Supreme Court. He lost, cost him a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, you can question the decision. Uh, but as a result of this last bylaw change from last month, now they have a new rule that if you sue the Tennessee Republican Party, you are barred from being a candidate for 10 years you know that's that's just ridiculous <laughs> um but that's that's the that's how they roll so they have all kinds of stuff in these bylaws that you are presumed to not be a republican that it, the burden of proof is on you to prove that you are a republican and they have stuff in there that you know lawyeristic fine print that we can deny you a bona fide republican status in our sole discretion and so forth now, the most outrageous example of all, in my opinion, is I ran in August of last year uh, as a write-in to be on the state executive committee of the Tennessee Republican Party. Every one of Tennessee's 33 state Senate districts has two seats on the SEC, a male seat, a female seat. And as it happens, no male had filed to run for the SEC in District 2. And I decided, well, if nobody else wants it, you know, I could do this job. And so I looked into it, figured out what you need to do to qualify as a write-in, filed the requisite pieces of paper in the various county election commissions that comprise uh, District 2. And uh, lo and behold, I was the only person that qualified as a write-in. Come election day, I got 302 votes which is a lot of votes when people can't just check a box, you know, with your name being on the ballot, they've got to type in your name and get it right. Well, the people here in Blount County thought, well, he's too conservative. He's not a team player. He's not part of the establishment. Uh, people in Nashville decided I'm too conservative for their uh, taste. And so after the election was certified by the Secretary of State, they decided to hold a Zoom call. And in this Zoom call, they said, you know, basically asked the SEC, uh, yay or nay, and I was voted down. My election was nullified after the fact by a 25 to 13 vote. You know, that's that's something that happens in banana republics. You you veto, you nullify elections after the fact. And th and this is this kind of rules, these fine print rules that they and nobody, I, you know, maybe maybe 100 people in the state of Tennessee actually know what the bylaws read and you know what the bona fide test means. Everybody else pays no attention to it. But that's where ignorance can get you into trouble because they can use it against you. So my position, and the reason I'm so hot about this is not because my election got nullified, but because Tennessee ought to be a conservative powerhouse in the United States. We are one of the most conservative major states. And when I say major state, a state with more than a million people, you know, not my, Montana, not Wyoming. And, uh, and we ought to be 
using our county party to build a grassroots army and to uh, be registering voters and getting out the vote and developing candidates and training candidates. And, and we're not doing any of those things. We ought to be having monthly, encouraging parties to have monthly meetings open to the public where people can feel committed as they're part of this Republican Party, and instead they're doing exactly the opposite. And I am this 3% number that you quoted is not a number that I came up with. One of the third candidate who got thrown off the ballot in the 5th Congressional District, a guy named Baxter Lee, he did some math, and he's the one that came up with the 3%. And so, you know, statewide, about 2 million people in Tennessee voted for Donald Trump. And what his analysis- 61 points in 2016 and 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And his his analysis is that if you looked at those people and say, did they vote out of three out of the last four primaries? Were they actively involved? Have they given money? Have they done all this stuff within the right time frame? You would find that no, that 97% of them did not. But who cares? They right. are, they're Republicans. They it's voted. Outrageous. It's outrageous, yeah. It's outrageous. I mean, Trump won basically nationally from people who were first-time voters, so yes. they wouldn't have been able to party. Okay, so back to your article. I don't want to run out of time with you, but I will. It usually happens. Um, Democrats residing in majority Republican districts often cross over to vote for the most moderate GOP candidate in contested Republican primaries, diluting the electoral preferences of the conservative grassroots and, not coincidentally, sometimes lending the margin of victory to moderate establishment candidates. Why would an opposition party, unless they really aren't opposed to anything, want Dems in their primary selecting candidates, which with their policies, and I've seen it at school boards, for example, which until recently was a nonpartisan race in Tennessee. Now they throw an R after the, their name and act like a D in office. Why would a Republican party that's this old, this established, this successful, nearly 61 points of margin of victory for Trump in 16 and 20. Why would they do that? Well, you have to separate the interests of the party from the interests of the voters. The reason that Trump got 61% of the vote didn't have anything to do with the Tennessee Republican Party. It had to do with the fact that we had a candidate on the ballot that appealed to a large percentage of Tennessee voters. The Tennessee Republican Party would like to take credit for that but they, they can't and they, they shouldn't be allowed to. So what we have is in our General Assembly and in certain statewide offices, including, unfortunately, I think our Governor Bill Lee, we have people who, who act like they're conservative Republicans when they're running for office, but they're not really in their heart of hearts conservative Republicans. They're establishment. They want to be well-liked by the Chamber of Commerce, by corporate donors that they rely upon to give them lots of money so they can run for re-election. And they they do the bidding of the lobbyists and the corporate donors. And so it's sort of a charade that they they act like they're, they claim to be Republicans because in most districts throughout the state, if you're not a Republican, you're not going to get elected. But they don't believe it. And they know they that don't, if- They technically they, don't really have the bona fides that you're talking about. They are there. They won an election, but they don't yeah. have it. We got about five minutes left. So let me just get through yeah. this here. Um, bona fide status. Once you obtain it, this is from your article, 
can easily be lost, even without a change in voting history, based on the failure to donate money regularly to the TRP or pay membership dues to a recognized auxiliary organization. You mentioned this. That smacks of pay to play. The TRP candidly acknowledges that the criteria set forth to determine if a party member is a bona fide Republican is not always cut and dry. It's highly subjective. In fact, pay to play, but isn't that really close to a poll tax, which is illegal? It, it, it's, it is, and it's a disgrace for that reason. And more, but I think more importantly, it's part of this elaborate set of rules that they manipulate to exclude conservatives. So it's not even like they're chasing after the money, they're just creating barriers to participation. We had in our most recent reorganization meeting in Blount County, an elderly woman who was a conservative activist who showed up to participate in this reorganization meeting. I had warned people that, you know, you need to have your voter record, your voter roll, bring it with you. And she brought hers with it. And she had voted in 35 Republican primaries in Tennessee, like pretty much every one. And so she showed up and she thought, well, you know, if this doesn't get me in, nothing will. They turned her away because she had not given $10 to the county party that election cycle. She says, well, I gave $1,000 to Tim Burchett, our Republican congressman. They said, I'm sorry, that doesn't count, and turned her away. How can you do that if you are a sincere Republican person running a reorganization meeting? How do you turn away somebody who's voted in 35 Republican primaries? And how can you sleep at night doing that? No. It's, a, it's a scam is what it is. And this one was definitely written by lawyers. Active involvement is a minefield of arbitrary judgments and the requirement of voting in three out of the last four GOP primaries is a trap for the unwary. Many diehard Republican voters in Tennessee and elsewhere vote in presidential primaries and the general election, but not every GOP primary every year. Giving money to the Republican National Committee doesn't count in Tennessee. The bylaws proclaim the TRP in its sole discretion reserves the right to disqualify any individual from running as a Republican candidate if it determines the individual does not meet the standards or requirements set forth in this Article 9. Procedural protections are wholly absent. The bylaws state also that neither the rules of evidence, the rules of civil procedure, nor any other standard required in American courts or law or of law or equity apply to disputes involving bona fide status. That's a lot of legal language indemnifying the party officials, isn't it? Well, it's it, it gives them carte blanche. And so like my nullification hearing wasn't a hearing. It was a Zoom call. And you have no idea, you know, who's there, who's talking. There's no recorded vote. I wasn't told in advance what the issues were, what the charges were, what I had to prove, who had the burden of proof. It was a charade. And Brandon Lewis, who you know, you've had on your show, he watched this. It was open to the public. And That's he wrote ahead, about man. it. And he said it was an embarrassment that these people were acting petty and childish. And they were. And so <clears throat> my point is that the Tennessee Republican Party needs to get a completely different orientation about this, scrap this bona fide test, close the primary. But even if you're not successful in closing the primary right away, 
drastically simplify this test and look at in the last, let's say, three years, have you voted in one or more Republican primaries and not voted in a Democratic primary? If so, you're you're eligible. You're okay, Mark, I got one minute left. Um, I could talk this stuff with you for hours, but we are out of time. So I'll conclude with your own op-ed. Uh, Tennessee should repeal open primaries and dispense with the transparently self-serving project of deciding who qualifies as a Republican. The current TRP bylaws are a bona fide disgrace. Do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell they will repeal open primaries and bona fides stuff anytime soon or more urgently before the 2024 election from Marsha Blackburn, new Tennessee governor, and of course, Congress next year? Not, not before 2024, but I think there is pressure building. And, and because of people like me complaining about it, that Brian Ritchie, who is our house rep, from Blount County, he proposed legislation that would close the primary. It was killed in committee and it, because the leadership wanted it to be killed. So that's yeah. what we're dealing with. Brian was here before you actually uh, won the election. So we like him very much. Um, we are at the end here. So tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you, follow your social media, follow your Substack, follow whatever it is you want them to follow so they can learn all about you. Well, the place to go and you learn all of these things, including things that uh, I'd forgotten were there to, to be found out is misruleoflaw.com is my blog. Everything I've written that's available, that's accessible digitally is there. And uh, I put new content on there whenever I have anything new to post. All right. Thanks for coming on with us. Hope to see you again. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, you over there? What did you just think of uh, Mark Pulliam? Did he blow your mind? Uh, amazing. And I think what people forget is those parties, those organizations are actually private membership associations. They can do whatever they doggone well please. And there's not one thing the government can do because it's a private membership association. And it's time to actually create a new private member association and join ranks and actually get make them obscure and pointless. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out. That's right. So I was doing my homework and I came across a Harvard-Harris poll. Not a fan of Harvard, not a fan of polls, but this one was actually very interesting and I had to dig deeper into it. Most voters say Israel is justified in eliminating Hamas and most agree the U.S. should stand with Israel. However, in that Harvard-Caps-Harris poll conducted last week, found a majority of American voters side more with Israel than Hamas, but college-age students are narrowing the gap. The poll was conducted online October 18th through 19th among 2,116 registered voters. That's kind of the best way you're ever going to get what people think and held a very small margin of error of 2%. Uh, when voters were asked who they sided with more in the Israel-Hamas conflict, 95% of voters age 65 and older said Israel. Okay, good. While only 5% said Hamas. Not sure who those five are, but that's not a lot. In the 18 to 24 range, 52% said Israel, while 48% said Hamas. The average percentage of support for Israel over Hamas from the 25 to 64 range was 82%. Still a majority, huge majority. 
Former Clinton advisor and chairman of the Harris Poll, Mark Penn, said the enormous gap was indicative of a genocidal divide. When I probe deeper, wow, are these college-age kids misinformed? 45% believe, you know, that Israel bombed the hospital. Most believe Iran is not behind everything, he said Tuesday on The Story. They are in another world when it comes to information far removed from reality. Penn said college students don't even know what they're saying when they chant from the river to the sea because it means the annihilation of the Jewish state. 52% of college-age students said Israel was not justified in eliminating Hamas in Gaza after it launched a terror attack on October 7th that killed an estimated 1,400 people, not just Jews, by the way. Someone, almost every country was represented in the slaughter, while 48% a minority said Israel is justified. Steve, what's wrong with Gen Z? I don't know. Maybe they're confusing Hamas with the Palestinian people because they're two different entities, much like Joe Biden and Steve Johan. I am Steve Johan, a U.S. citizen. I do not support 95% of anything that Joe Biden does or Jay Inslee because I'm also a Washingtonian. And I, I strongly suspect most Palestinians do not support Hamas. And so I think there may be a idea that Hamas is Palestine when it's not. And when you say Israel, um, they're saying, well, Israel against Palestine. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that is where the problem is, the breakdown is going there, Steve. I don't know. Um, but I don't support anybody for killing anybody, no matter who it is. I mean, I want peace. I want to allow people to live and, and have families and, and work. I, I, I hate any kind of terror, no matter Whose government does it? Period. End of subject. College students have very limited worldly <laughs> outlooks, I think. We've studied a lot of universities and what they're teaching these kids, and it's very <laughs> limited. I, I was there once myself CRT some 30 to 40 one. years ago. Yep. But outlooks change as one matures. Uh, the younger generation, remember, didn't even live through 9-11. They don't even have a basic understanding of terrorism and how it has affected us here, let alone those in Israel. Okay, next story. U.S. gives more than $4.1 billion, with a B, wrap your head around that for a second, in grants for LGBT and transgender initiatives worldwide. Yep. Among other things, grants infuse schools with gender ideology and sexual orientation topics, despite polls that show 70% of Americans don't want that. During the past three fiscal years, $4.1 billion in federal money from taxpayers has been flowing to LGBT initiatives in the United States and around the world an Epoch Times investigation has revealed from October 1st, 2020 through September 30th, 2023, the U.S. government issued more than 1,100 grants to fund LGBT promoting projects around the world, according to the Epoch Times review of a federal spending website. Plans to create a safe space for LGBTQ youth and adults to seek support and resources earned a $1.8 million grant from the U.S. government in 2022 for the LGBT Life Center in Norfolk, Virginia, a proposal for encouraging diversity, equity, and inclusion in Serbia's workplaces and business communities by promoting economic empowerment of an opportunity from LGBTQI plus people in Serbia also was a winning plan. To fund it, the U.S. government awarded Serbian activist group Grupa Izadji a grant of $500,000. 
An Armenian activist group, the Pink Human Rights Defender, received $1 million from the United States to empower the LGBTI community in Armenia, a tiny country next to Turkey. Steve, do you think they say thank you when they take the money and don't actually use it for the LGBT plus stuff? I think you, I think maybe there is something what you're saying there. I mean, but Steve, I just said that the administration is not reflective of my morals nor standards. And there is a perfect example of over a billion dollars that my U.S. government pushes out there to promote what I call evil. You know how I know that's true? Likely goes towards rockets and bullets instead. This from the BBC.com. Palestinian police have arrested a suspect in the killing of a 25-year-old man after his body was found decapitated in the occupied West Bank. LGBTQ groups in Israel, where Ahmad Abu Marhaya was seeking asylum, say he had received threats because he was gay. Some 90 Palestinians who identified as LGBT currently live as asylum seekers in Israel, the newspaper said, after suffering discrimination in their home communities per BBC, who is no friend of Israel. Let's run with clip number one. They're moving in right now. There are dead bodies everywhere. The ground is burned. There are crashed cars. You can see in the bus station the clothes of the people taken by the terrorists. Right across the street, a completely destroyed house. You can see around me, cars parked, absolutely destroyed. Right behind me there is the breach in the fence from which the terrorists came through. The terrorists came into the village and burnt down everything in sight. Trucks used to get supplies to the people who live here. This is a house that was completely burnt down by terrorists. There's a siren that sounded right now. We're taking cover. There's been another siren. We've been instructed to stay down. Hamas's cruelty knows no bounds. And never forget, or if it's your first time hearing this, you're welcome, September 6, 2012, 11 years after 9-11, the boos from the floor were aimed at Los Angeles Mayor Antonio Villagrosa, Villagrosa, who was running the Democratic National Convention at the time and asked for three separate votes, voice votes on the amendment that restored a mention of God. On the third vote, Villagosa ruled that the eyes had won by a two-thirds majority. Quite a few delegates opposed the mention of God. Some, no doubt, were primarily concerned about the mention of Jerusalem. Party leaders might have simplified matters by introducing two separate amendments, one to restore a mention of God, the other to name Jerusalem as Israel's capital, but that tactic would not have suited the purposes of the party strategists. They didn't want an open debate on God during the convention. They didn't want to give American voters the opportunity to see just how radical the Democratic Party has become. They became the amendment approved quickly, pretty telling, I'd say, and embarrassing. Uh, do you remember that, Steve? No, but I know our time is up, just to let you know. All right. So when Biden, the leader of the Democratic Party, and Chuck Schumer, born a Jew himself, say they stand with Israel, you can pretty much know they are full of shit. Uh, is that the end of the show, or can I move on to my quotes of the day? Go ahead. Quotes of the day. Okay. Let us not seek the Republican answer or the Democratic answer, but the right answer. Let us not seek to fix the blame for the past. Let us accept our responsibility for the future. John F. Kennedy, 
I am a Republican, a black, dyed-in-the-wool Republican, and I never intended to belong to any other party than the party of freedom and progress. Frederick Douglass, the Republican is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind. Thomas Jefferson, and some of you may be new to this group, Hamas, the terror outfit out of Middle East. Just so you know, they have a real government. Israel gave them the land they live on where they handed it over, and with that government, they have a charter. Here's how it reads. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it, just as it obliterated others before it. Oh, okay. That's who college kids are rallying for. Don't say you don't know it ever again. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Mark Pulliam, for reminding us that some Republicans are really Democrats, but no Democrats are really Republicans. Hat tip Dan Bongino for that one. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Peace in our time. Glory to God. And stay tuned for bonus feature of my appearance today on Final Countdown with Angie Wong, along with author and cartoonist Ted Rawl. They asked me about the Trump trials. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know, I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com. Hi guys, it's Ben Dieter from Wake Up Memphis, and you're listening to the Milk Creek View Tennessee Podcast. I don't understand. Bring in a friend of the show to help talk about this. Steve Abramowitz is the owner and CEO of the Mill Creek View and the host of Mill Creek View podcast. Steve, welcome to the final countdown. I'm sure I assume that you heard what Angie had to say there. Um, I have a question, which is, you know, Angie said uh, that Jenna was probably did the right thing for herself. But whatever happened to principle, whatever happened to you know, you she was his uh, Trump's attorney. Why not just uh, take her chances in court, fight it out? And if she goes to jail, she goes to jail, refuse to cooperate with Fonnie Willis. Thanks for inviting me. Second of all, that was an amazing um, list there that we just heard because that nailed it. That is the answer. You know, I look at it in two ways. To answer your question. Um, you can look at it as the personalities involved which is what the mainstream media wants us to do. And then there's the bigger picture. You know, there was a book written in the 70s called All the President's Men about Watergate. And after George Washington, the biggest landslide victory up to that point was Richard Nixon. So the people wanted him. But within minutes of his election, two guys from Massachusetts went out impeaching him, just like Trump coming down the escalator in seconds of his inauguration address 
impeachment began. So, uh, by the way, that was Edward Kennedy and Edward William Brooks III from Massachusetts, both senators. So anyway, the point is, is that what I see is a RICO case <laughs> being made, uh, overcharging, like we just heard, flipping on the lower level folks, Sidney Powell, she got a $6,000 fine, six years of probation. Jenna Ellis, she got a $5,000 fine, only five years of probation. So she must have done something a little less bad. But by the way, they could appeal this because the 2010 Georgia law, 16-10-20, has a maximum fine of $1,000. So I don't even know what they're thinking. They're not even looking at it. It's only a paragraph long. I could read it so fast. But anyway, point is, she got probation. She got $5,000 restitution, 100 hours of community service, which probably means just give speeches. But here's the key. No communications with media or co-defendants. So they're, they're basically trying to get all these 17, all the president's men, to cooperate with them to make their bogus case to probably a, keep Trump off the Georgia ballot or just ruin him in the press so he, people don't want to vote for him because of the baggage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I see it as a completely unconstitutional um, harassment of a former president. We've never been in this position before uh, where your counselors are uh, asked to flip on you in order to save themselves. And um, I just want to say one thing. Jenna Ellis wrote a, had a GoFundMe that raised over $216,000. She knew, being a lawyer, the max fine was $1,000. I want to know if she's going to give back that $215,000 to those folks because that seems a little unusual to me. It's a small correction. I think she's going to get uh, $5,000. She she's getting hit by a $5,000 fine, but your uh, your broader point stands there, Steve. Um, but I mean, what about like, why does nobody, uh, you know, no, why is nobody willing to die on the hill for Donald Trump? Is it just because he's congenitally cheap and will not pay for uh, support? Or I mean, even to the point, let's just say he doesn't want to pay. Can't he? Doesn't he have a network of donors uh, and deep pocketed allies who uh, could be counted upon to come to the rescue of uh, the people who are in legal jeopardy because they worked for and with him? Well, there's almost 20 people, and they're trying to flip all the way up to Giuliani, Eastman, and Trump himself. If he funded all of this nonsense in every state that they're yeah, – because there's also the New York situation. You know, we're talking millions and millions of dollars. I don't know if he did do that, and he believes – like, he believed the election was stolen, true or not. We don't know. Um, that it's, it's charges. So I don't know what he's supposed to do. He can't fund everybody. He can't fund all the J6 defenders and all the rest. So that, um, the, so that's one answer. The other answer is, you know, Mark Meadows wrote a book. He made money selling that book. I don't know if he made a little, but he did it. And he basically told Trump as his chief of staff that the election was stolen. So he's going by his best advice. Now they're all in the docket saying, you have to now say, if you listen to Jen Ellis's uh, hostage video after the settlement, that 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 was wrong. They did, it wasn't stolen. We, we've been re reprogrammed, and now we believe it wasn't wrong. And so he's out there saying the exact same thing because his butt is in the docket for that. So uh, the answer to your question is, unless you don't believe in justice anymore or the right to defend yourself or the right to free speech and say that an election is questionable, whether it is or not, at least question it. 
we are talking about criminalizing free speech. Steve, I have a question for you. So Steve Sadow, who is Trump's lead attorney in the Georgia case, uh, he said that uh, the plea deal for Jenna Ellis casted doubt and, and legitimacy on the racketeering charges brought on by Fannie Willis. So he's saying, I'll quote, for the fourth time, Fannie Willis and her prosecution team have dismissed the RICO charges in return for a plea deal. And what that shows, what he says, is it shows that this so-called RICO case is nothing more than a bargaining chip for D.A. Willis. He also noted that Ellis, who, plead, who pled guilty, uh, the charge that she pled guilty on was not part of the original indictment back in August. This is brand new. This was not part of what she um, what she was charged with in I think it was August 14th when all this came down, right? So this is something else. They're 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 basically winging it, don't you think? It, that's what it feels like. This is a brand new charge. You didn't bring down the indictment uh, in front of a jury, in front of a judge. Uh, this is completely made up. It's not part of what she was originally charged with. What's happening here? Everything's happening on the fly. Yeah, these are lawyers talking to lawyers about lawyers doing lawyer stuff, and I'm not a lawyer, and I don't play one on my podcast, but I can tell you this much. I've seen enough late-night TV to understand that when you are making a plea deal and you're a prosecutor who is aggressive, oftentimes overreaching, and you want to make your case, you need the people flip. And so what they're getting, lawyers who understand how expensive this would be if they fought it, to say, okay, I'll plead down to a misdemeanor, no jail time, which is terrible. You know, Eastman is a California lawyer, as is uh, Kenneth Chesborough. They didn't plead, well, he pleaded guilty to a felony. He could lose his law license in California. That's how it works in California. You can get uh, disbarred for crimes involving dishonesty. That's what this is about. So they have a very big Damocles sword over their head saying, either play ball with us or risk everything that you've worked for for your entire career to get yourself to the high office in the land and being in the inner circle of the president of the United States. That's not a good thing for the future, since now every lawyer is going to have to wonder, like, oh my gosh, is everything subject to disclosure? Do I have to be looking about you know, California laws to make sure that I don't give the recommendation to the president that may you know, harm my career in the future, blah, blah, you know, these are volunteers when they go to work for the president out of patriotism. That was the question earlier is, you know, where's the principles? Well, they also have to look at, out for their own self because they don't want to end up in jail uh, for trespassing like January 6th. So I'm sorry, did that not answer your question? No, it did. Absolutely. So who's going to ever work for Trump ever again? Exactly. Who? What lawyer exactly the point that the far left is trying to do? It's like, hey, think twice before working for this guy. Because, you know, he's he's damaged goods, and so they won't do it. And so then if he does win presidency, let's say, then well, who's he going to look to for his answers to important questions? Not the best and the brightest, because the best and the brightest will be like, can't risk it, not going to do it. Remember Jason and Dershowitz, all these folks who came out in favor of him during the, the, the impeachment hearings? Well, next time, you're not going to have such wonderful law um, uh, on his side because it's just going to be some public defender willing to say like, yeah, I'll work with the other side. It's a terrible thing. It's lawfare. I've been talking about it for two years now, basically recognizing the judicial branch, the legal uh, fabric of our country, and no future president, unless they're a Democrat, 
we'll ever get good um, counsel again. And you're right. Everybody pleaded down from felony, which would risk, you know, life, women, property to misdemeanors so they could just play ball. And when the questions come up, did Trump lie, cheat and steal? They would say, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. He did. Okay. Well, we have Rudy Giuliani, who got disbarred. You have Jeff Clark, who uh, they are trying to disbar in D.C. as we speak. That's a separate case that he's on, on top of this Georgia Rico case. And then you have Kenneth Cheeseboro. I think there might be one more lawyer they're going after. Uh, 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 is it Ellis? Not, not Sorry, not well, obviously Ellis, but uh, Eastman. That's right. Th- that they're trying to disbar. So this is the new game, is it, to disbar the lawyers who work for your opposition? I mean, there's a bail bondsman, right? Just a guy, a bail bondsman named Graham Hall, who had to plead guilty to five counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties, which are all misdemeanors, uh, according to the Associated Press. And prosecutors had him um, participating in a breach of election equipment in rural Coffee County, which is in Georgia, and initially charged him with racketeering and six conspiracy counts, all felonies. So there you go. There's your misdemeanor versus felonies. As part of the deal, he has to get five years of probation and agree to testify in further proceedings. That's the deal right there. He was also ordered to write a letter of apology to citizens of Georgia and is forbidden from participating in polling activity. So he just lost his First Amendment right to participate in elections, has to deal with the prosecutors on their side and write a mea culpa letter to the citizens, just like Jenna Ellis had to read one and uh, Cindy Powell had to do. So it's pretty clear to me what they're doing here. This is a kangaroo court that's trying to make sure that they get up to the highest levels, whether it be the head of Meadows, who was chief of staff, or Trump himself, which is what they'd love to, and just in time, if you look at the calendar, for next year's election. All right, Steve, we are going to leave that there and obviously continue to follow this um, um, drama. There's really no other word for it. Um, Steve Abramowitz is the owner and CEO of the Mill Creek View and the host of the Mill Creek View podcast. Thank you, Steve, for joining us here on The Final Countdown. Always appreciate you. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.